Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Dave Ansel. Hello, Dave. Hello, and this week we've got how astronauts on the way to Mars might be affected by radiation, how we can watch chemical reactions taking place with the new microscope technology, and we try to shed some light on a new generation of LEDs. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Naked Scientist, then email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can also find us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash the Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. And joining Dave and me to take a look at the science news headlines this week is science writer Mark Peplow. Uh, Dave, you're up first, though, with a look at Mars astronauts and how much radiation they might be exposed to on their way to the red planet. That's right. So throughout science fiction, travelling to other planets comes up again and again. And last month, 80,000 people have applied to be part of a one-way trip to Mars, which is, of course, the most habitable of our near neighbours, even if it's not very habitable. Now, a mission would obviously be exceedingly expensive, but even if you could get past that hurdle, would the crew actually survive the experience? Well, why wouldn't they survive the experience, first off? Well, the problem is that space is continuously bombarded by high-energy particles. Some of these are coming from deep space from other parts of the galaxy, um, but most of it's actually due to the sun's atmosphere being continuously blown off in what we call the solar wind. Um, This is mostly high-energy protons and some other heavier ions which bash into your body and damage you like any other form of radiation would. This could cause cancer or, in extreme cases, radiation sickness or even death. Um, On Earth, or even on the International Space Station, we're largely protected from this by the Earth's magnetic field, which kind of captures these particles and funnels them into the North and South Poles, where they don't do a lot of harm. But if you head out towards Mars, you're obviously getting beyond the reach of the Earth's magnetic field, so you're bearing the brunt of the full force of that radiation. That's right. And there have been various measurements on Earth, um, but no one's ever actually done the measurement on a trip to Mars. But luckily, the Mars Curiosity rover has just done this trip and they put a radiation sensor on board and you can convert that into a dose which an astronaut would get. And it comes out really quite high. Um, there's two things to worry about. One is the kind of background level and the other one is the peaks, which turn out to be up to 100 times higher caused by solar storms. The radiation is 0.67 sieverts, which is about the equivalent of the highest dose of any of the radiation workers at Fukushima and is a bit higher than the maximum dose NASA lets its astronauts t- take up over their whole career. It's a, yes, it's a car- one astronaut career dose, isn't it? It's one sievert, give or take, and that's supposed to raise your cancer risk by between 3 and 5%, isn't it? And that's judged to be a worthwhile risk. So we're going to have to improve our ways of shielding astronauts from the radiation or somehow make that trip a lot quicker so they're not exposed to it for as long. I looked it up and I think the daily dose is equivalent to having a barium meal investigation in hospital on a daily basis. So it's quite high input of radiation. Can we do anything about that? You say new technology with better shielding. How easy is it to shield against the particles that have got the sorts of energies that they have out there in deep space? It's actually very, very difficult because the particle has so much energy. Most shielding you put up actually makes the problem worse. One particle hit the shielding, then split up into five, then hit, hit more shielding into ten thousands of particles. So you can actually make the problem a lot worse by kind of putting some shielding up. So either you're going to have to have an immensely thick layer of lead or do something much higher tech with some kind of electromagnetic fields, which will do a bit like the Earth's magnetic fields and protect you and somehow kind of dump it into some part of your spaceship which you don't care about. 
So either way, you've, if you do make the return trip to Mars, you're basically going to get a lifetime's dose of radiation just making the journey without taking into account what you might encounter on the surface of Mars. So it's a big problem. So it's certainly going to be a big risk. Some people might be willing to take that risk, but I'm not sure I would want to. Well, here on Earth, of course, about 1% of the population suffer with a problem called schizophrenia. And people who have this illness have a range of symptoms, but they are often dominated by people having hallucinations, usually auditory hallucinations. They hear things and, and often voices, people saying things either to them or about them, which are usually disparaging. And it's extremely off-putting and destructive for these people's lives. There are a range of ways of treating this. They range from drug treatments to also some behavioural therapies. But there's been announced this week quite an interesting approach using computer technology. This is the work of Julian Luff, who's a researcher at University College London, and they've published a small trial of 16 patients who have used avatars to control their symptoms. So what the researchers did was to create a system where they invite the patient to come into the lab and they asked them to use a computer package to design a face representative, in their view, of the origin of the voice that's speaking to them in their head. They also asked them to use the computer software to come up with a voice for this avatar, which most closely resembles the voice they can hear in their head when they're experiencing their auditory hallucination. And then the therapist goes into another room and, using lip-sync software, can speak in the voice of the person's avatar, with the avatar's mouth moving in a realistic way to the patient. And what they start doing is the person reasons with the avatar about why it's annoying them, why it's upsetting them. And initially the therapist starts off being fairly confrontational, but over a series of six one-hour-long sessions, they actually make the voice become supportive and say positive, not nasty things. And in three of these 16 patients, the voices that they'd had in one case for 30 years went away completely and have not relapsed at three-month follow-up, which is a dramatic outcome for a start. And the researchers think it might work because when people are having these voices, they're usually terrified and they're frightened of where the voices are coming from and what they might do to them because the voices tend to make threats to them or to their family. And because they have created the avatar themselves, they know that it can't really be the voice. But because they can control and reason with the avatar, it teaches them the very strategy that they can then use on the voices they are having to suppress them. So you're sort of psychologically hijacking this voice into a, another um, person who you have control of. Julian Luff says they don't know exactly how this works and why they should get such a dramatic response, but that they think that because the people are too scared to develop these strategies when they've got the voices going on for real, they don't try these approaches to stop them. But when they gain confidence and become motivated through engaging with this avatar, which is slowly becoming more nurturing and supportive, it gives them the confidence to say, get out of my head. And actually one person said after just two sessions, they walked out of the lab and these voices just went away. I mean, one, one of the patients they describe uh, was being woken at five o'clock every morning by a woman who was holding business meetings in his head, having a discussion with all her subordinates. And uh, he said um, he was able to finally turn around and say to this woman, I don't want to know about your, your company in my head at five o'clock in the morning. It's disturbing my sleep. So what they were saying is these people have no insight often into the fact these voices aren't real. But by giving them the tools to work with them, you don't have to convince them the voices aren't real. You just have to convince them of a way that will work to to help them get rid of the problem. And if the symptoms of the problem, if you can control them, that should make their lives far better. 
Indeed. Well, let's look at uh, things on the really, really, really small scale now, Mark. Um, actually watching chemical reactions happening. Yeah, this is fantastic. For the first time, chemists have taken before and after photos of molecules involved in a chemical reaction. So they actually show individual carbon atoms and the chemical bonds in between them uh, and how they rearranged on a metal surface. So how do they actually do this? Well, it's using uh, a technique that's been around for many years, actually, called um, atomic force microscopy. Uh, and it works remarkably like a record player. So it's got a probe with an incredibly sharp metal tip on it. And that has got a single molecule of carbon monoxide stuck to it. So you've got an oxygen atom that's like less than a billionth of a metre um, over the top of this surface where you've got your carbon-based molecules stuck to it. And as the oxygen atom moves across, it moves up and down, just like a record player needle bobbling around in the grooves on a record. That jiggling is detected by a laser bouncing off the top of the probe, and that's what's converted into an image. Now, IBM scientists had first used this technique where you're, you're sharpening the tip with that carbon monoxide molecule. They, they'd done that back in 2009 to look at quite a simple carbon molecule called pentacene. What's new here is that the group led by Felix Fisher at the University of California, Berkeley, have used it to actually understand how a chemical reaction works, and that, that's really new. How do they stop the species they want to look at moving around all over the place to the extent that all you see is a big blur? It's rather like a really scratched record, to take your analogy. How do they resolve that? Yeah, the, the answer is simple. They make it bloody cold. Our old friend liquid helium comes in, uh, chills things down to just four degrees above absolute zero. Uh, that's minus 269 centigrade. So they chill it down, um, uh, take a photo, uh, and then you warm it up to 90 degrees. That makes the reaction happen. The uh, atoms rearrange, form new bonds, and then you cool it down again, take your after photo. So this is sitting on some kind of surface, I guess, otherwise you're not going to be able it's to It's sitting on a silver surface, it. yeah. So is there any chance of the silver affecting how the reaction is, how the molecules are sitting around? And there's a possibility of that, yeah. In fact, the reaction as it happened didn't quite go how they anticipated it. Um, so what they're saying is actually in some cases this could be a virtue because it would allow you to investigate, for example, how uh, organic molecules, carbon-based molecules, rearrange on a metal catalyst surface. Um, if you think about the catalytic converter in your car, that's gas molecules sticking to a metal surface. Um, if you can understand how larger molecules rearrange themselves on a catalyst surface, you can start to um, improve that catalyst, basically, because you're understanding exactly what it's doing. Will it work for other species? Well, at the moment, this is going to be best suited to stuff that's flat, basically. But one of the things that they're using this for is actually to understand ways of making graphene, which are huge atom-thin honeycombs of carbon atoms. Very exciting material, very strong. They're trying to build that from the ground up and find different ways of making different forms of graphene. So for that sort of material science, it's absolutely perfect. Thank you, Mark. Well, what about uh, thawing out plants that have been in the ground for something like 400 years and actually seeing them grow? That's been published this week in the journal PNAS. It's the work of researchers at the University of Alberta, Catherine Lafarge and her colleagues. They have been to Ellesmere Island in the Canadian Arctic 
and there is a structure called the teardrop glacier there and it is retreating quite quickly in fact it was retreating at about three meters a year it's now since 2007 accelerated it's going back four meters every year but on a visit they noticed that as the ice is receding it is showing a mat of material that was underneath it of plant matter and when they have looked at this plant matter, it's sort of mosses and things, plants called bryophytes, very tough species. They looked at these organisms closely and thought, these look a bit green, and some of them almost looked like they were growing. Now, it's really hard to say, well, is it just something else that's landed on there and is growing? So they took some samples, they took them back to the lab, they carbon-dated the samples, which proved they were between four and 600 years old, and then they put them on a Petri dish and with appropriate nutrient growth media and about seven of them have grown and they have now got adult plants which clearly haven't been alive for 400 years growing again. So were these dating from some warmer period when there was less glacier? Exactly right and this relates to the thing called the Little Ice Age which was in the Middle Ages between the 1500s and the 1800s there was a, a minimum and so glaciers and ice sheets got bigger at that time and went over the top of this tundra-like material that was there, effectively entombing these plants in ice, but they are still living and still viable. And the reason that they've managed to do this is this particular group of plants, which actually date back about 450 million years in terms of their evolutionary time, they don't have any vascular system in the plant. They're not uh, full of vessels to carry water around. So each bit of the plant has no real overall control over how much water it can get. So they have evolved to be really resilient to being dried out or stressed by lack of water. And also each cell in the plant is what's called totipotent. It can completely regenerate the entire plant from scratch. So all you need is a few viable cells and you've got a new plant. But they say that the important ecological point here is that when we see a glacial retreat going on and then the landscape is recolonised with plants, actually a lot of that recolonisation could be these initial extremophiles coming back from the dead. They're already there and they just recolonise because they're already there. It's not new species coming in. So it could have important um, impacts on our understanding of how this process plays out. Well, anyway, finish us off this week, Dave, and bring us right up to speed with the very modern era and optical data transmission. That's right. A new, longer-range way of running a fibre optic has been developed. Whether you know it or not, you're probably using fibre optics every day, probably even at this very moment. They're the very thin glass fibres which carry most of the information around the internet and your telephone system. The information travels in the form of incredibly short pulses of infrared light because glass is very, very transparent in this colour. And it can travel tens of kilometres and still be easily detected. It can then be amplified and it can travel another tens of kilometres in a relatively cheap process. The problem is that when you send this laser light down a very, very long optic fibre, there are various processes which, instead of having a nice sharp pulse, which is easy to identify, they kind of splurge it out and turn it into a kind of very long, um, wide pulse. And one option is just to slow down the pulses. So instead of having lots of short pulses, you have a few wider ones, but then you get less data down your um, optic fibre, and that's bad, and you can't send it, and your internet gets slower. So you want some way of sending the information down without losing the shape of these pulses. Zhang Lui Lu and colleagues from Bell Labs in New Jersey have come up with a really cunning strategy. It turns out there's a way in which you can make a specially shaped pulse of light which will have exactly the opposite degradation to your original pulse. 
So if the first pulse kind of gets wider and spurges in one way, the other one will get spurged in exactly the opposite way. The sort of mirror image, if you like. So, so in some sense, it's a mirror image. Um, this is called phase conjugate. And they've sent two pulses, which are phase conjugates of one another. And because the degradation is exactly opposite in the two, when you add them two together at the end, it sort of cancels itself out and you get a much better original pulse out. And they've actually managed to send information at 400 gigabits per second down an optical fibre, which is 12,800 kilometres long, which is you know, significantly way around the Earth, um, with no other form of regeneration. So this should make long fibre optic cables underwater far, far cheaper because you don't have to put in big regeneration stations to kind of make the pulses nice and sharp and increase the capacity because it's cheaper so you can put more fibres in and our internet should get quicker. Well, let's hope that this uh, speeds up downloading of The Naked Scientist for everyone around the world. Thank you very much, Dave. And also thank you very much to Mark Peplow. You can find more information about the stories we've been discussing this week, including the references to them, on our website at nakedscientist.com slash news. Now, this week marks the 60th anniversary of the first complete ascent of Mount Everest by Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay in 1953. But few people know that had it not been for the failure of one of the two competing designs of breathing equipment, a completely different pair of climbers would have made it to the top first. With the story, here is your quick fire science from Hannah Critchlow and Kate Lamble. The summit of Mount Everest is over 8,800 metres or 29,000 feet high. That's higher than some aeroplanes can fly. At this altitude, there is only a third of the oxygen available at sea level. At higher altitudes, the same percentage of oxygen is found in the air, but the drop in overall atmospheric pressure means there is, in effect, less air overall. Above 8,000 metres is the so-called death zone, where the amount of oxygen is not sufficient to sustain human life, even at rest. Before the first ascent of Everest, mountaineers typically used an open breathing system to deliver extra oxygen and make the climb that bit easier. This system works by adding oxygen to the air the climber is breathing in and their exhaled breath is released around them, like in scuba diving. However, one British scientist, Tom Bordelon, thought that the system was wasteful as we absorb less than a fifth of the oxygen we breathe in. In an open system, this oxygen we breathe out is lost. In 1952, he developed a closed rebreathing system which recycled the expelled climber's breath and passed it over soda lime to remove the carbon dioxide. More oxygen was then added to the air, multiplying the amount the climber could absorb before it was breathed in again. On the 1953 Everest expedition, several groups of climbers made an attempt on the summit simultaneously. This included Tom Bordelon and his climbing partner Charles Evans, as well as Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. Using the new rebreathing system, Bordelon and Evans ascended Everest at record rate, climbing 1,500 feet in 90 minutes. The same stretch took Hillary and Tenzing more than two hours. Eventually, they came within 90 vertical metres of the summit of Everest, but a problem with their new oxygen system forced them to turn back. No one's sure what made the equipment fail, but it could have been an air leak or frozen valve. Three days later, Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay reached the summit using their open breathing system and became household names. Since Bordelon and Evans failed in their ascent, open systems have continued to be favoured for mountaineering, but scientists are now using Bordelon's design to develop medical devices which could help patients with obstructive lung diseases. Hannah Critchlow and Kate Lamble. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Dave Ansell, and with Chris Smith. Also this week, a new way to fight the flu. 
US-based scientist Maria Limberis and her team have inserted the gene coding for an antibody that can neutralise various forms of flu into a harmless virus called AAV9. Squirted into the nose, this triggers cells lining the airways to make anti-flu antibodies, theoretically blocking infection for up to months afterwards. Hello, Maria. Hi, Chris. Talk us through the process. We used a virus that's uh, non-pathogenic. It's called adenosociate virus vector to actually uh, carry the uh, genetic information for broadly neutralizing antibody that was uh, isolated back in 2011, put it into our vector, and then use the expertise that we have to target specific cells of the airway to transform the cells of our nose into almost mini factories that could actually produce antibody. So So basically you take this antibody, or at least the gene for the antibody, that someone else has discovered what that gene is, and you put that into this adeno-associated virus vector. This then goes into the nose, into the airways, and the cells that, that take up that virus get the gene for the antibody, so they start making and secreting the antibody. That's right. That then defends that mucosal surface against any flu viruses that come in, does it? Exactly. So what will happen is that that cell will continuously for its life produce antibodies that will then be uh, secreted into um, the airway and they will just, um, so you can just imagine the amount, uh, that amount of antibody becoming more and more concentrated that uh, upon introduction, whether you are exposed to a sneeze or someone's cough, with virus and you breathe it in, um, that will get deposited in your nose, but the antibodies that are there will fight that virus and neutralize it before it has a chance to replicate in the nose. So does it work? We have a mouse-adapted H1N1, um, which, again, H1N1, uh, we've had cases of pandemic 1918, the Spanish flu, So what we did is used the vector expressing the antibody, gave it to the mice, and then after um, a set period of time, anything from three days after the uh, vaccine to 14 days, we challenged these mice with the actual H1N1 and then monitored for um, survival or any onset of symptoms. Animals that get H1N1 start losing weight quite rapidly and in most cases have to be euthanized within eight days. In contrast, when you see animals that were given this vector-based vaccine, the animals look completely healthy and normal, no weight loss. In fact, they actually gain weight and have no signs of behavioral distress. So then we collaborated with researchers over in Canada, Dr. Kerbinger, and we did similar experiments with different strains of pandemic flu and our mice were completely protected. What about animals that are regarded as a better model of human infection? Because traditionally when we've looked at flu, and and flu was actually first, in fact, discovered in ferrets, wasn't it? Have you looked in them? Yes. So we then transitioned, based on those data, we then transitioned and did some uh, other studies using both H1N1 and H5N1, both of which have been associated with pandemics. And H5N1 is typically um, uh, associated with bird flu. 
And um, what we found in those particular experiments that were uh, done both in Canada and in the U.S. is that we saw complete protection of the ferrets, which got us even more excited because it is a model that actually mimics the uh, human airway uh, response to uh, influenza. So we're at the stage where you make this vector, you put it into these airway cells, it clearly has the ability to protect animals of a range of different mammalian species from what would otherwise be lethal doses of flu. So that's looking very encouraging. But do you know how this actually works? Because, you know, there's a lot more to the respiratory tract than just a few cells in the nose. So why are these animals getting so comprehensively protected by what you're doing? So we um, think that it's simply that we're creating a biomask, an invisible biomask, where you would have such a high concentration of protective antibodies at the surface of the nose that upon inhalation, it basically just attaches to the virus and neutralizes it. As simple as that. That's the the theory um, that we are basically uh, basing our work on, and it seems to be falling in that category, that uh, we're creating a invisible shield in the nasal cavity. And how long do you think it will express for? How long could a person who, if we did translate this, this to humans, how long could a person be protected by this for? So we estimate that we are probably getting expression of the antibody for a minimum of six months. And so you would expect your patient to be protected from anything from days following the delivery of this vector to at least six months. And is there any downside to this? Is it possible that the antibodies could, through sheer numbers or chronically being present, actually do damage to the host? Those are issues that we are uh, really uh, thinking about. And um, in terms of the immunology of having way too much antibody and a site that otherwise would not. The beauty of this particular aspect of what we're doing is that um, the airway epithelium is not long-lived. And so even though we have a fast onset of expression of the antibodies that don't stay at the same level for a very long time, in fact, with time, anything from three months towards six months, we get a a sort of a a progressive uh, diminution of the expression of the antibody. And so far, in the models that we've tested, including macaques, uh, we haven't seen any side effects associated with having antibody present there in terms of somehow damaging the integrity of the epithelium or somehow making the particular uh, species or model more susceptible to a particular infection. Maria, thank you. We'll have to leave it there. That's Maria Limberis, and she published that work this week in the journal Science Translational Medicine. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Dave Ansell, and with Chris Smith. There's long been a search for energy-efficient lighting that can replace the extremely wasteful incandescent bulbs that we use. In fact, they're only about 25% efficient. Most of the energy they pump out is infrared light heat that we can't see. And that means that governments around the world have started programmes to try to phase out these very inefficient bulbs. And currently, the most commonly available energy-efficient bulbs are the compact fluorescents, but they take time after you turn them on to warm up. They also contain low levels of toxic chemicals like mercury, and they're widely seen as producing a fairly harsh, unsympathetic lighting output. But through breakthroughs in light-emitting diode or LED technology, these are offering a cheap alternative. 
We're joined in the studio by Colin Humphreys, Director of Research at the Department of Material Science and Metallurgy in the University of Cambridge, who's been working on bringing LED technology to a wider market. What actually is an LED? An LED is a solid which, when you pass a tiny electric current through it, it emits brilliant light. And I brought along with a children's toy here, and this is a pig, and uh, with one finger I could just press this lever on a pig and you get bright light emitted from this pig. And uh, if I stop pressing, I've actually put enough energy into this that the bright light continues to shine now, so they're extremely energy efficient. So far better than a conventional light bulb where you're just heating up a piece of wire. And I guess wasting a lot of energy. Far better than a conventional light. I mean, if I may have just slight correction, a conventional light bulb is actually only 5% efficient. 95% comes out of heat, right? A compact fluorescent lamp, these so-called low-energy light bulbs, they're, they're, they're about uh, 20% efficient. So they're 80% inefficient, even these so-called low-energy light bulbs. So what sort of efficiencies can you get out of LEDs? LEDs at the moment that you can buy now are 30% efficient, so they're already something like six times as efficient as an old-fashioned light bulb. But in the laboratory, we have them to 60% efficient, and they'll be coming onto the market in the next few years. So that really is an improvement, yeah. They'll be the most efficient source of lighting available, yes. But one problem, I guess, with LEDs, if you actually have to go and buy them, is they're mm. quite expensive. Yes. What's the problem with that, or why are they so expensive? So they're really expensive because to get a sufficient light out, you have to have about eight or ten LEDs in a sort of light bulb shape. So this is a Philips bulb, which I got in John Lewis, and uh, it costs £13, and it's a 48-watt equivalent bulb. Not many people will spend £13, even though over the lifetime you'll save a lot of money in electricity, so you'll, you'll save overall, but the initial outlay is too expensive for people. These are expensive because there's something like eight or ten LEDs. Each LED costs about one or two pounds. This is because they're grown on sapphire or silicon carbide wafers. And a wafer is, uh, think of an ice cream wafer or a tree's wafer, right? So a sapphire wafer, you actually grow a piece of sapphire artificially, you slice it up into wafers, and then you grow on this. And sapphire is really expensive, and silicon carbide is expensive. Silicon itself is really cheap. And so you save a lot of money by growing on silicon. So what are you actually growing on the silicon or the silicon carbide? We're depositing a material called gallium nitride, which does not exist in nature, so it's a man-made material. And then the material which actually emits the light is something called indium gallium nitride. So it's three different elements put together, indium, gallium and nitrogen. And those, those elements are in very thin layers called quantum wells, and it's those layers which emit the brilliant light. How do you get the colour of the LED? Are they naturally white? A really good question. So um, the light is emitted by the indium gallium nitride, and if we have 15% indium in this indium gallium nitride, you get blue light. If you have 25% indium, you get green light. If you have 80% indium, you get red light. So you just It's like cookery, in a sense. You just change the composition, change the mixture, and you get different light. And in fact, I've got here some LEDs I brought along, and uh, if you push these buttons, you see all sorts of different colours. And then to get white light, we take blue light, and this is another demonstration I brought along. <laughs> this is, in fact, one of the first gallium nitride on silicon LEDs we made, and it's not incredibly efficient in this demo. We've improved the efficiency, but it's still pretty bright. And so this is blue light that you take. So that's a quite a deep blue light. It is, that's right. And if you place what's called a phosphor on top, that converts the blue light to white light. And a phosphor is a material where you put in high-energy photons, which are blue, and you get out lower-energy photons, which in this case are yellow. And the phosphor is very thin, so the 
blue light shines through this yellow phosphor to give white light. Is this an efficient process, converting blue light into the other colours? Well, that's a really good question because you lose energy in the phosphor and also in going from a high-energy photon to a lower-energy photon, you lose energy. So the next generation after this, you'll get rid of the phosphor altogether and you'll make white light by having red, green and blue LEDs, individual ones, and you'll combine them together to make white light. And you might have a little controller, like the controller on a a television set, which actually can control the colour rendering of this white light. So in the morning when you wake up, you might have bluish white light. You might have a romantic dinner with reddish white light. But you're able to control, okay, the colour of the light you get. This might seem like a stupid question. Why aren't you doing that already? We are not doing it already because for reasons we don't understand, this is where the research comes in, the efficiency of green LEDs is less than blue or red. We don't know why. So that's a science problem to solve. But if we can solve that problem, then we'll have very efficient white lighting from red, green and blue. So at the moment when you buy an LED, it's based on a sapphire wafer, which is an expensive thing. So, and you're replacing that with silicon. Why isn't that easy? All the commercial LEDs you can buy at the moment, they're grown on sapphire wafers or silicon carbide wafers, and they're both very expensive. So we had the idea of growing on silicon wafers, and that's much more difficult to do scientifically because when you heat up silicon, it expands at a very different rate from when you heat up gallium nitride. And we grow these LEDs at 1,000 degrees centigrade. It's very, very hot. So when you cool down, the LEDs just crack because of this. And so what we do, we deliberately introduce layers which introduce compression into the system, and it matches the tension you get when you cool, so it doesn't crack. And the other thing is you get lots of defects when you grow on silicon, about 10 times more than when you grow on sapphire. And so we introduce special clever techniques to actually minimise and reduce the defect density. So how much is growing it on silicon going to reduce the price of an LED? So, well, silicon's really cheap. So a six-inch diameter silicon wafer uh, costs about £20. A six-inch diameter sapphire wafer will cost about £500. So, you know, it's just so, it's more than more, much more than 10 times cheaper. And then if you use silicon, you can go through a six inch processing line and all the fabrication, high yield, and everything we associate with silicon chips, you can get on, on these LEDs. Thank you very much, Colin. And in fact, within the past year, Colin's technology has been licensed to a company called Plessy Semiconductors, and they have set up the UK's only LED factory. And Dominic Ford hopped on a train to find out more about how the technology is being commercialised. Welcome on board, first question is delayed, 1406 service from Tottenham to Plymouth. Currently running nine minutes behind. To see Plessy's facility for myself, I'm heading to Plymouth to see some of the people behind the venture. Hi, Dominic Ford from Naked Scientist. I'm here to see Barry Dennington. Oh, hi, that's right, Dominic. Come with me. So here at Plessy, you're bringing Colin Humphrey's technology into industry. That's correct. So Colin's technology is the growth of gallium nitride on silicon, and we are taking that technology and we're scaling up to be able to build more than one wafer in a single reactor run, going into high-volume production. So we're leveraging the wafer size, the improved yield, to get very cost-competitive products out to the world market. So I think this is the first factory making LEDs on silicon in the UK. I guess we think a lot about electronic products being made in the Far East. Can the UK's manufacturing industry compete with that? Absolutely. The first thing is that we have a unique technology which is 
not available in Asia right now. So that's a breakthrough that's disruptive for the LED market. Furthermore, it's the machinery that creates the volume, and we have the machinery here and the capacity to increase that machinery so that we can increase the volume. So can I see some of the products you're making here? Yes, of course. We have a demonstration table over here which shows you some of the applications that we have. So you've got a wafer here, what, a couple of centimetres across, and you've got this what looks like a yellow plastic dome over the top. Is that dome which is converting the white light to blue light? So the dome is a plastic dome which is impregnated with phosphor, and it's the phosphor impregnated in the plastic dome that converts the blue light to the white light. The phosphor dome sits over a small printed circuit board and on that printed circuit board, there are eight LEDs mounted. Elsewhere in the, in the bulb, we have a lot of attention paid to um, heat management. So there's a rather large heat sink with lots of fins to increase the surface area. And finally, we have the driver circuitry. The LED is a 3.3-volt component. We take 240 volts at uh, 50 hertz in, and the driver is a voltage converter to make sure that we're getting the right amount of current and the right voltage to the LED to allow it to illuminate. So we've got these fins here to dissipate the heat. How efficient is this light bulb? This is a 60-watt equivalent light bulb. That doesn't mean to say 60 watts go into it. In fact, only 12 watts go into the light bulb. So around 8 watts of heat is dissipated from the light bulb. So this bulb is producing an equivalent amount of light to what an inefficient 60-watt incandescent bulb would produce? That's right. So this is producing an equivalent amount of light to a 60-watt incandescent bulb with one-fifth of the energy going in. So can we go and take a look at the production line where you're producing these bulbs? Of course. The people who work in the MFA, this is the manufacturing line we make the magic LEDs in, they're the biggest source of contamination that there is. And so in order to keep contaminants to a minimum we have to make sure that all of our external clothes are covered by these anti-static coveralls. So what is the problem that dust can cause? So the dust can cause uh, open circuits or short circuits on the LED uh, and simply cause LEDs not to function. So there's a specific order to to gowning up. The first is the face mask. Okay so I will pop this over my head and I've got a sort of veil in front of my face now. Perfect. Next then is the overall. quite some suit this isn't it it is yes it's a little bit like a clean room onesie so the suit itself is impregnated with very fine wires and that stops static i'm certainly feeling quite well dressed now (laughs) and in a moment you'll be feeling very warm as well it's quite incredible lengths you go to to keep the clean room clean the cleaner the clean room the higher the yield on the product and the more cost competitive we can be we now have to enter the clean room through our air shower The air shower is there just to make sure that any loose debris or particulates that might be on the suit are blown off before you get into the clean room. We do a little pirouette as we go through, and now we can enter the clean room. So I guess my picture of a clean room is very white and clinical. It really is very white and clinical in here, isn't it? Very much so. Many times cleaner than a surgical operating theatre. So here we've got a glass box with, with in fact, some gloves coming out of it. What are we looking at here, Barry? This is the chamber inside which the gallium nitride is grown on the silicon. So this is the process where you're performing the technique that was pioneered in Cambridge? Yes, and we've industrialised it and commercialised it. So I can see you've got what looks like a laser in there. What's, what's happening in this chamber? 
The system uh, delivers uh, all of the gases and uh, chemicals that are required to grow the gallium nitride. And in fact, the process uses vast quantities of hydrogen and ammonia gas, as well as uh, metal organic sources to bring the, uh, the gallium, the indium uh, and the aluminium into the, into the reaction at the appropriate times. I get the impression you can't say too much about exactly what that recipe is, though. <laughs> I could, but I'd have to kill you afterwards. <laughs> Probably best not, then. Probably best not. This is the machine that we use to print the patterns onto the wafer. So this is basically printing the electronic circuits onto those silicon wafers? You can think of it as a very large camera, and it uh, images the pattern which is contained on a quartz master, images it onto the surface of the wafer, and enables us to make the patterns on the wafer as small as about 0.6 microns in, in size. But it's very important to put those patterns in the right place. So the placement accuracy of the patterns is even finer to within about one-tenth of a micron. So once the pattern is printed onto the wafer, we then go through a, an etch process to selectively remove some of the GAN layers in order that we can make contact to the anode and contact to, to the cathodes. So that's so that you can put the wires into the final product? Yes. So we have a number of etch technologies available to us. This is our GAN etcher. This uh, contains all the chemicals and the gases that you need to selectively etch the gallium nitride itself. Once the gallium nitride is etched, we then need to make electrical contact to the anode and to the cathode. And we use various metal schemes in order to make those contacts. Uh, we have a number of different technologies for uh, depositing those metals. We have a technology we call evaporation, and that's literally where um, the, the metal is, is heated up with an iron beam and the, the metal evaporates into a cloud, and that cloud then condenses onto the surface of the wafer. It's a little bit like uh, seeing snow form. Small crystals of frozen water come together to make a film of snow, very similar to the way we deposit metals onto the gallon silicon wafers. So in this bay, this is our uh, evaporator tool. The evaporator we use to deposit uh, metals onto the surface of the wafer, uh, mostly precious metals such as gold and silver. So we've got what looks like a very strong metal door in front of us. I guess I find it incredible given what lengths you're taking to keep everything clean and in controlled conditions how many LEDs you're managing to get through this plant? How often, for example, would you be opening this door and putting new wafers in? So in this particular tool, uh, a run would take in the region of two hours and nine wafers would be deposited in, in a single run. So nine wafers at 15,000 LEDs per wafer is 135,000 LEDs uh, every two hours through this particular tool. So in terms of going to a supermarket and buying a light bulb, when do you think I might see a Plessy LED-based light bulb in the supermarket? I think possibly first quarter next year. And of course you can buy LED lamps in the supermarket today, but they are very expensive. This technology will uh, enable the price breakthrough to be achieved, reach that strategic inflection point where people will naturally choose an LED over and above any other kind of lamp. That was Barry Dennington, COO of Plessy Semiconductors, finishing that report by Dominic Ford. So have you started to replace your light bulbs with LEDs and have you noticed a difference in your home? We'd very much like to hear about your experiences. Do let us know. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientist or you can look us up on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash the 
Naked Scientist. Dave. You're listening to Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Dave Ansell. As we mentioned earlier, one criticism of the current generation of energy-saving light bulbs is their colour. But it's not just that people find blue light harsh. Scientists are also discovering that blue light can affect your sleep cycle, especially if you're reading before you go to sleep, or, as it turns out, cleaning your teeth. Russell Foster is Professor of Circadian Neuroscience at Oxford University. Well, the eye, of course, detects light in two very different ways. The eye is used to construct an image of our world, and of course that's vision, and we've understood that for centuries. But of course there's another function of the eye, and that's to detect overall levels of brightness in the environment and use this to regulate physiology as diverse as the body clock, uh, levels of alertness. And what's turned out to be really remarkable is that there are different sorts of receptors. The classical receptors, the rods and the cones, are building the image of the world. And then there's another light sensor called a photosensitive retinal ganglion cell, which is measuring brightness and firing information directly into those areas of the brain, which regulate these non-visual responses to light. So we've evolved as humans to wake up in the morning and go to bed when it gets dark. So what influence or what impacts are there on our health of having artificial light? Well, when Edison (laughs) invented the light bulb and it became widely used in the 20th century, it allowed us to essentially invade the night. And it's been estimated that even people who aren't doing things like shift work um, are probably sleeping one and a half to two hours less every night uh, because of the use of of artificial light. And overall, uh, the levels of, of sleep we're getting as a society and as an individuals is vanishingly small compared to a pre-industrial age. So what artificial light has done is, is, is compress a really rather expanded sleep period into uh, perhaps as little as six hours, six and a half hours for most people. What about the type of light, though? Because Edison's light bulb put out a certain range of wavelengths that were effectively a nice, comfortable daylight resembling glow we're now making light bulbs that actually i'm just looking at some that are powered by leds that produce quite a harsh blue color so does the type of light potentially have an impact yes it does these photosensitive ganglion cells are pure brightness detectors and interestingly enough they're most sensitive to the blue wavelengths of light so these blue enriched leds will very much stimulate those cells that we use to regulate our body clocks, our levels of alertness, and indeed our pupil size. And of course, one of the places where we're seeing a lot of these LEDs being used is in computer screens, which if you believe what Facebook and Twitter tell us, the last thing, something like half of young people in Britain and probably the rest of the world do before they go to bed is to check what's on their Facebook page or their Twitter account. So we must be getting quite high exposure to this very blue-dominated light late at night. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely fascinating because, of course, there is this biological predisposition for teenagers to go to bed late and get up late. But it's enormously exaggerated by the sorts of things you were talking about, um, checking one's Facebook and going on and, and, and exposing oneself to these screens. Now, it's not particularly bright, and, and, and the earlier screens probably weren't bright enough to shift the body clock, which needs quite a bit of light. But they certainly would have been bright enough to raise levels of, aware, of alertness and therefore delay um, nighttime sleep. So these, these screens are sort of uh, exaggerating this biological predisposition for teenagers to go to bed late and get up late. What about in the workplace or just in the home more generally, as we adopt bluer dominated lighting 
Is that always a bad thing? Is it not good in the morning to have that because it might make me feel a bit perkier? I think that's exactly the right thing. And, and it's the intelligent use of these light sources that could be incredibly powerful. So what you need is bright morning light exposure to set the body clock to local time. And that's, that will be terrific. So exposure in the morning to these bright light sources will be very good. And in, in addition, they will increase levels of, of alertness in the workplace. The downside would be having bright light exposure uh, at the other end of the day uh, when you're trying to get to sleep. And one of the most extraordinary things is, is, is I've seen some of these devices being incorporated into um, bathroom mirrors. Now, you know, the last thing many of us do, of course, is, is, is clean our teeth in front, of the, into the, uh, in front of a bright mirror before we go to bed. And, of course, that hugely increases our levels of alertness and, and, and delays our, our sleep. So it's not just in, in sort of computer screen type devices, but it's in, in many applications where uh, inappropriate light exposure is not necessarily going to be good for us. Do you think then that now we can make things like LEDs that can put out different wavelengths, we could have timed LEDs that will be very blue dominated in the morning to get us going and then as the day goes on they could be tuned so that people do feel more relaxed as the day goes on and then as you go to bed at night you're seeing much more red dominated light and this doesn't have this enlivening effect when you're trying to go to sleep. I think that's, a, that's a, a very exciting application. I mean, the intelligent use of these, these devices could be incredibly powerful in fine-tuning uh, both our visual biology, but also um, uh, the biology of the sleep-wake cycle. Is there actually any evidence that it is having ill effects, though? Because everything you've said so far, I, I don't disagree with, but it's all based on, well, this is going to make people feel more awake or it's going to put us out of step with our, what our body clock should be doing. But is there any evidence that's actually bad? We have a few studies that have emerged which have looked at the impact of um, iPads and, and, and devices like that on uh, suppressing melatonin. Uh, and of course, melatonin suppression is often used as a surrogate measure for the impact of light on the body clock. And these devices were shown to suppress melatonin. And uh, so, yes, we do have some real biology that uh, the non-image forming photoreceptor systems, the non-visual systems, are being affected by these, these devices. Russell Foster from the University of Oxford. And if you have any questions on how lighting affects your health or any other subjects that we've been discussing on today's programme, do let us know. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists or you can look us up on our Facebook page. And finally, Hannah's been pondering how plants are affected by artificial light in our question of the week. This week, we shine some light on plants to illuminate a question that Gerald from Chatteris got in touch with. Chatteris has just replaced all their old street lights. They also removed 10% of them. The new lights are on taller posts, casting white light further than the old amber lighting. The lights have been so bright that my tulips grew leaning over to the new lamp at the front of a neighbour's garden. It took several days of bright sun for them to stand erect. So, how do street lights affect plant growth? I'm Alex Summers. I'm the Glasshouse Supervisor at Cambridge University Botanic Gardens. Plants require light to photosynthesize and they require it at two parts of the light spectrum. They require it at between 400 and 450 and 650 and 700. Whereas from my understanding a high pressure sodium lamp works between 570 and 650. So in reality the light spectrum put out by a high pressure sodium lamp is probably unlikely to massively affect plant growth. LED lamps 
which are becoming increasingly common in lots of lighted equipment, which we can't use at all in plant growth uh, because they don't put out uh, the right spectrum of light. So streetlights don't emit the correct wavelength of light in nanometers to boost photosynthesis in plants by much. In which case, what's causing Gerald's tulips to change their direction? I would probably say what Gerald is seeing is the tulips tracking the sun. So as we come more into summer and the sun becomes higher in the sky, it's more likely that that what you're seeing is the tulips tracking from late winter and spring with the sun being lower in the sky to the sun moving to a higher point within the sky as spring turns more towards summer. But are there other ways that streetlights can affect nature? I'm Richard Jones and I work in the RSPB's Wildlife Inquiries Department. Probably the most obvious is the, uh, the sound of birds singing in the middle of the night, particularly robins. Birds generally sing in low light levels at, at dawn and dusk, and uh, it's thought that the artificial light can actually mimic those low light levels found in the early hours and triggers the birds to sing uh, in the middle of the night. Another relatively common sight is bats feeding on insects around street lights. Uh, the insects are attracted to the, uh, to the lights and the bats come along and, and, and feed on them. And are the new style streetlights impacting nature in a different way? Uh, there's currently very little evidence that streetlights are having a significant negative impact on our wildlife. However, I have heard recently that scientists are concerned that moths are more strongly attracted by brighter white light uh, that has replaced the traditional orange glow from, the, from our streetlights. Then thought that the, these insects are becoming exhausted because they're spending longer periods flying around the lights rather than mating or searching for food. Uh, and it can make them more vulnerable to predators too. Well, with that topic illuminated, we stick with nature and cast our eyes to the skyline to try to answer a question that Eugenie Podolsky wrote in with. So I'm just wondering, how high could a mountain on Earth be? The Olympus volcano on Mars is about 20 kilometres high. But could a peak on Earth ever reach this height? And if not, why? So how do mountains form and what's to stop them reaching even further? into the sky. Send us your thoughts to studio at thenakedscientists.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists, you can write on our Facebook page, or you can join in the live debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. Hannah Critchelow. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you to our guests, Maria Limberis, Colin Humphreys and Russell Foster. And thank you also to Dave Ansel for joining me. The production this week was by Kate Lamble and Hannah. Next week, we'll be looking at the heights of Everest and the depths of the ocean to discover the physiology behind how humans survive in extreme environments. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust and the EPSRC. My name's Chris Smith. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.